Good morning, West Bulls. How are you this morning? Rested after your extra hour of sleep? Every clock in our house, I think, uh, changed back except my alarm clock this morning. So I've been up for a while and I'm ready to go. Lots of coffee. <laughs> Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. How many of you have heard the motto, all for one and one for all? Raise your hands. Yeah, I'll bet everybody, unless you've been living life under a rock somewhere, have heard that motto, yes? All for one and one for all. That, it's traditionally associated with the Three Musketeers. Remember those guys? The Three Musketeers, the book written by Alexander Dumas. He's the 19th century French author famous for his historical novels of high adventure. All for one and one for all, he wrote. In the Three Musketeers, all for one and one for all was the motto of three musketeers named Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, who stayed loyal to each other through thick and thin. All for one and one for all. Now, with all due respect to Mr. Dumas and his three musketeers, they were not the first to recognize that unity among individuals is crucial to success, especially in difficult circumstances, especially when faced with an enemy intent on destroying you. Long before Mr. Dumas penned all for one and one for all, God had pleaded with his people to stay united, united with him and with each other, United against their enemies, intent on destroying them. God deeply desires and requires unity among His people. In fact, unity is one of the most pressing needs and challenges in the church. In John 17, Jesus is only hours away from arrest and crucifixion. And it's His last chance at the end of the Lord's Supper to pray with all of his disciples together, all except Judas, who's already left. And it's his last chance with all of them together to, to pray. And of all things that Jesus could have possibly prayed about with that last chance, together with his team of Tell Me Deem, of all things, guess what dominates his prayer? It's unity. Jesus prays first for His disciples in the room. Holy Father, He says, protect them by the power of Your name, the name You gave Me, so that they may be one as we are one. Wow, that's unity. Jesus prays that His disciples will be one as God the Father and God the Son are one. Now that's about as one as you can get. And then Jesus prays for us, specifically. Did you know that? Did you know that the Bible records a prayer for us that Jesus prays, specifically for you sitting here this morning? Did you know that? And of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for us in the 21st century church, for you and me sitting here this morning, listen to what Jesus prays. He says, Father, I pray also for those who will believe in me through the disciples' message. That's us. That all of them be one. 
Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. May they be brought to complete unity. And then Jesus tells us why unity is so important. Jesus prays, may they be brought into complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God is deeply interested in our unity. All for one and one for all may work for musketeers. But it's also God's intent for Christians for us too. The early church struggled with unity. In fact, its biggest internal unity struggle may well have been the tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. This concern inundates much of the New Testament. And it's not too hard to imagine why this was such a struggle, is it? On the one hand, the early church was full of Jews who had for over 1,000 years been taught some very hard lessons sometimes by no less than God Himself to steadfastly obey Torah that He Himself gave them on Mount Sinai. On the other hand, here come all these newbie Gentile believers wearing buttons that said things like, what's a Torah? Now, I think we can understand the difficulty of getting these two very different groups of people on the same page, right? Go figure. Well-meaning, good Christian people sometimes have very different opinions about things. Can you imagine that? And so the Jewish Christians thought, hey, these Gentiles, these newbies, need to obey the law of Moses in order to be saved, including circumcision well that got the gentiles attention especially the males and they responded circumcision ouch oh no we don't oh yes you do do not do too and it all got quite self-righteous and nasty on both sides that particular threat to unity in the early church comes to a head in acts 15 and the church leaders in jerusalem step in to try and restore unity. And since your Bibles are already open to Acts 15, let's see what happens, shall we? You recall we last left Paul and Barnabas in the church at Antioch, rejoicing and probably recovering from Paul's first missionary journey. About a year passes, and this Jewish-Gentile clash over obedience to the law This threat to unity in the early church comes calling. And let's read 15 beginning at verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. 
Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, this may be the same group that had come up to Antioch in 15 verse 1, and look at that, there are Pharisees who actually believe and are part of the Jewish leadership council in the church in Jerusalem. Say Christian Pharisees can sound like an oxymoron to us, but here are a group at least who are believers. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. You remember Peter and Cornelius. One of the stories, at least, Peter is probably talking about. Verse 9, God made no distinction between us, Jews, and them, Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself, Israel. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, and now James quotes from the book of Amos, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. And then James says this, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Other English translation says we shouldn't cause trouble for the Gentiles. Instead, we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. These are the very words of God. Amen? Amen. And so the council in Jerusalem decides that circumcision is not required of Gentiles. And then the council turns to a more difficult question, much deeper, really, in some ways. What about the rest of the law? Are Gentiles free to live as they see fit without any regard to God's commandments in the first five books of the Bible? I doubt 
anyone here today is surprised that the council decided obedience is still important for Gentile believers. But how many of you are at least a bit surprised at the list of don'ts that the council lays down? Don't eat idle meat. Don't eat meat from strangled animals. Don't eat blood. Oh, yeah, and by the way, don't be sexually immoral. What a curious list. When I studied um, the list again this past week, I immediately thought of Sesame Street. How many of you watched Sesame Street growing up? Yeah, and care to admit it? Yeah, I did too. I finally gave it up last week. What? One of the games on Sesame Street, what they would do is they would show a picture of four different things. Remember? And then they'd ask which one didn't belong. And so on Sesame Street, there might be three bikes in a car, right, or three circles in a square, and if they wanted to get really hard, three apples in a carrot. And then they would sing this haunting little song that gets stuck in your head just forever. And they would show you the four things, and they would sing this song, right? How many of you? Sing along if you remember it with me, okay? Yeah, some of you know it, okay? One of these things... Is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other? By the time I finish my song, right? How many of you remember it? Good. Yeah, it'll be in your head for at least this week. I guarantee it. Well, that little song popped into my head again as I looked at this list of things in Acts 15 that James and the council said Gentiles must not do. Let me ask you. Don't worry, I won't sing the song again. Which of these things just doesn't belong? Right, it's obvious, isn't it? We, got, we have these three, you know, social rules, theologians call them, kosher rules about what not to eat. And then right along with them is this one big moral rule, ethical rule about sexual purity. Well, that last one just doesn't seem to belong. What a curious list. And there's something else, at least, that, that seems curious about this list. What about no stealing? Are the Gentiles free to steal? How about no lying or keeping the Sabbath or honoring parents? Is eating meat with blood in it? Is eating a steak medium rare? Is that worse than lying? Where are the Ten Commandments? Are the Gentiles free to break them? What a curious list from James and the Jerusalem Council. Now, if you're like me and this list does seem a bit strange to you, take some comfort in the fact that we're in good company. Biblical scholars and theologians have grappled with this rather odd list for nearly 2,000 years now. Both Jewish and Greek or uh, Gentile scholars, in fact, have weighed in with differing opinions trying to explain the list. In the interest of time this morning, I'm only going to highlight two of what I think are the more helpful explanations for this rather odd collection of commandments for Gentiles. And along the way, help me remember, let's keep an eye on what all of this has to do with the importance of unity among God's people, shall we? After all, that's the reason why the council comes together to decide anything that day. There's a dispute among believers in the church 
a threat to church unity. First, in attempting to explain the list, many have concluded that the items you see on that list stand for more than the literal actions described. You say, what do I mean by that? Well, the prohibition against literally eating idol meat stands for no idolatry as a whole. It's just not the meat that the council condemns. It's what the meat stands for, a false god or idol. So the prohibition, according to this attempt to explain, is really no idolatry. And then, because blood was synonymous with life in the first century, the prohibitions against blood and strangled animals combined to stand for no murder. Or maybe even broader than that, no taking life lightly, or, or no disrespecting the amazing gift of life. And then no sexual immorality, that's already in its broad or general form, so we don't need to expand it. It already stands for itself, you might say. So this explanation at least suggests that what we have in effect from the council is the following list of don'ts. Don't worship idols, don't commit murder, and don't be sexually immoral. And that helps, it seems to me, doesn't it? It helps the list seem at least less odd, doesn't it? How does this explanation help us understand what the list has to do with promoting unity in the early church between Jewish and Gentile Christians? Well, just so happens these broader prohibitions, no idolatry, no murder, and no sexual immorality, had already been long accepted by many Jews at least, maybe even back as far as Leviticus and Noah, who we'll talk about in a minute, that had already been accepted, those three, as the minimum requirements for Gentiles who wanted to follow God. God-fearers, we say. And they might reach back all the way to Noah. Did you know that Noah is a Gentile? I mean, Noah comes before the Tower of Babel. Noah comes before the Table of Nations. Noah comes before there was even the word Jew or Hebrew or Semitic in existence. And Jews recognized Noah as, as a common ancestor of sorts with Gentile, just like Adam and Eve. And so it may be that James points back to Noah. Idolatry had led to the flood... So, no idolatry for Noah and his family going forward. And then God, as part of His covenant with Noah, says to Noah, Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, maintain sexual morality within the context of marriage and for the right purposes. So, no sexual immorality. And then God tells Noah in Genesis 9, Don't eat blood. And in Genesis 9... God Himself makes the connection between not eating blood as a metaphor for no taking the life of another human being. So no murder. And so the Jewish Christians in the early church saw the Gentiles obeying the same things that God had required of Noah thousands of years before. So I think James was hoping that that would be enough for Jewish Christians to accept full fellowship in Jesus' name with the Gentiles, enough to maintain unity. Unity with the Gentiles, even if circumcision was not required. 
See, if I'm a Jewish Christian and I see my Gentile brothers and sisters abiding by the covenant of Noah, that might be enough for me to embrace them as family because Noah is my ancestor too. That's one explanation. A second explanation, it leaves our list entirely intact as very literal eating prohibitions. When James said, don't eat meat with blood in it, that's exactly what he meant, no more and no less. James didn't necessarily intend for it to stand for something more. You say, well, now why would James do that? Here's one likely possibility. Guess. Guess what four things all occurred in Gentile pagan temple praise and worship. Take a wild guess at what four things, in particular, history records went on as part of worshiping Greek and Roman gods in their temples. These four. If you are a follower of Artemis, the Greek goddess Artemis, for example, as part of your praise and worship in the first century, you would be invited to eat meat with blood in it. You would likely eat the meat of a strangled animal because they didn't have Leviticus and they didn't care how the animal was butchered. You would eat meat sacrificed to Artemis and you would be invited to engage in temple prostitution in the side rooms of the temple with Artemis's male and female prophets. Sorry for the nature of that last one, but, but that's what went on. And if that's what James had in mind as he made his list, suddenly our Sesame Street song goes out the window. All of these things belong on the list because they were all very associated in particular with pagan temple practices. How does this explanation help us understand what the list has to do with promoting unity in the early church between Jewish and Gentile Christians? The Jews had long recognized God's desire to set them apart as a holy people before God. God had called Israel out from among the nations, out from that morass of pagan worship in Egypt. He called them out to be distinct and separate from the pagan nations around them. And so when James pinpoints pagan worship practices swirling around at least the Gentile believers in their Gentile temples and cities, when he pinpoints that with this particular list, suddenly, hopefully in James' mind, in the council's mind, will the Jewish Christian find a way to identify with her Christian brother, her Gentile brother in Christ. Gentiles, too, are now called to be distinct and separate from the pagan culture surrounding them, just like the Jews. It's no longer only Israel that is to be distinct. It's the church made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. So again, if I'm a first century Jewish Christian and, and I see my Gentile brothers and sisters agreeing to take very seriously the command to be distinct from from pagan worship practices and pagan living, that might convince me to embrace them as family and to work to maintain unity. Now, there are several directions we could go this morning by, by way of application. We could talk about the continued need for Jewish Christians, today we say Messianic Jews, the continued need for 
Messianic Jews and Gentile Christians to strive for unity. That unity is still sorely tested. We could talk about how we as Christians must continue to live lives that are distinct from the pagan worldview of self-worship all around us. We could talk about the continued need to flee from idolatry, sexual morality, immorality, and even murder, whether literal murder or any disrespect of the great gift of life God has given us. We could talk about denominational differences that tend to divide us. But this morning, what God's put on my heart to focus on is right here at West Bowles Community Church. The, the need for unity among believers in Jesus Christ, the need for unity among us here at WBC. Is our unity ever challenged as a church? Are there disagreements that from time to time come up among us? Nah. We never disagree about anything, right? How about this one? The type of music we sing. <laughs> like a ripple goes through. Is he really going to talk about that? It's too loud. It's not loud enough. Why do we need all those drums and all that electric guitar? What's with all the these and thous and shalts and wilts in that song? What is that song, like a thousand years old? Who talks like that anymore? Boring means nothing to me. After talking about temple prostitution, that sure seems trivial, doesn't it? But you know, um, it's no less destructive to our unity. Even something like that can give the devil a toehold to cause strife and division among us. If you're interested where I stand, I'll tell you. If you're not interested, then plug your ears. I cherish the fact, frankly, cherish it, that West Bowles includes both traditional and contemporary styles of music. I love that about you. I love that about West Bowles. Personally, truthfully, you give me holy, 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 or a mighty fortress is our God with a thundering organ, and I'm good to go. But over the years, I've come to appreciate that there are others whose praise and worship experience of God is opened up by many different styles of music. And so the question I've had to answer is whether I'll give up my preference, sometimes at least, in style of music for a fellow brother or sister who likes something different. Will I give that up for unity? Can you imagine a church where all the hymn lovers are adamant that we only sing contemporary songs for the sake of someone else? And then at the same time, in the same church, can you imagine, all the contemporary song lovers plead with leadership to sing hymns all the time because they mean so much to someone else. Can you imagine a church like that? Imagine a church where everyone who comes to praise and worship God comes wondering what more can they give rather than what they will receive. Can you imagine that? Well, if a Jewish Christian can accept no circumcision for Gentiles out of love for Gentiles, 
And a Gentile Christian can accept eating his steak well done out of love for Jews. Yeah, I can imagine a church where people willingly and even eagerly run around looking for what more I can give up out of love for someone sitting across the aisle. Radical stuff, this Acts 15 call to unity, yes? How about this one? It's harder. Maybe. I know music reaches deep. How about um, doctrinal differences? And I'm talking about the finer points of theology, not doctrines essential to the faith. Doctrines essential to the faith, like the existence of God, the need for a Savior because of sin, and salvation in the name of Jesus Christ alone. We cannot and should not compromise on essential doctrine even for the sake of unity. Amen? But what about all the non-essential stuff? What about eschatology or end times? Whether the rapture will occur before, during, or after the tribulation. Should our opinions there divide us? Here's a harder one. The role of women in church. Yeah, and I got really clear. Nobody flinch or move because you might, you might give a clue to what your position is. And Should our opinions there threaten our unity? How about the length of the days of creation in Genesis? How about God's sovereignty versus free will? How about infant baptism versus believer's baptism? Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Hey, pastor... When are you going to preach on those things? My answer is when pigs fly. <laughs> I'm only half kidding. I, I imagine I'll preach on those things one day. But I, I, I tell you, when I do, let me tell you, a chief concern and prayer of mine that will be covering that entire message. Chief concern will be that my opinion on those non-essentials and others like them would tend to divide rather than unify us. I would imagine that when Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, make them one. Remember? He had the Council of Acts 15 in the first century church in mind. But you know what? He also had in mind the 21st century church and its constant dividing and bickering over non-essential issues. Oh, Father, Jesus prayed, make them one as we are one. All for one and one for all. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, listen to what he says. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one. For you are all one, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the basis of our unity. Jesus Christ. We are in Christ Jesus. That's the basis of our unity. That's the, 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 the midsis of our unity. And it's the topsis of our unity. That's it. 
Jesus is the only basis and foundation that matters for unity. He's the one that makes us one. We are Christian. We are one in Christ. And are we really going to let things like preferences of music or non-essential doctrinal opinions destroy a unity that rests upon us being one in Christ Jesus? Let's not. Remember, we are a team. Team, tell me, deem. Remember? Tell me, deem is Hebrew for disciples. We're a team of disciples. Now, I brought with me today an audio clip. If you're a sports fan, and, and even if you're not, you've probably heard it before. It's regarded by many as one of the greatest pregame speeches ever given by a coach to his team. Frankly, seeing Coach McCartney here last week reminded me of it. So as you listen to the late uh, Bo Schembechler addressing his Michigan football team before the big game, Try to pull yourself out of it being about football and sports only. Consider, will you, whether there's anything he says, however unintended, that might also be helpful for us as team, tell me, Dean, as a team of disciples here at WBC. See what you think. We want the Big Ten Championship, and we're going to win it as a team. They can throw out all those great backs and great quarterbacks and great defensive players throughout the country and in this conference. But there's going to be one team that's going to play solely as a team. No man is more important than the team. No coach is more important than the team. The team, the team, the team. And if we think that way, all of us, everything that you do, you take into consideration what effect does it have on my team. Because you can go into professional football, you can go anywhere you want to play after you leave here. You will never play for a team again. You'll play for a contract, you'll play for this, you'll play for that. You'll play for everything except the team. Think what a great thing it is to be a part of something that is the team. We're going to win it. We're going to win the championship again because we're going to play as a team. Better than anybody else in this conference, we're going to play together as a team. We're going to believe in each other. We're not going to criticize each other. We're not going to talk about each other. We're going to encourage each other. And when we play as a team, when the old season is over, you and I know it's going to be Michigan again. Michigan. Can you see why young men wanted to play for Bo? The team, the team, the team. The body of Christ, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. Encouraging one another. Working together. Living and striving for each other. What will you do to promote unity in the church? P.S. And then we'll close. Do you remember why our unity is so important? Jesus mentions it in John 17, and, and James mentions it again when he quotes Amos in Acts 15. Perhaps this is why unity is uppermost on Jesus' mind before he goes to save the world. He says our unity, our unity, will let the world know that God sent Jesus and that God loves his people.
And James quotes Amos, who said that God would one day restore David's kingdom through Jesus so that all men, even Gentiles, would seek God. Hmm. Sounds like unity has a lot to do with witness and saving the lost, doesn't it? So if our unity... If our unity convinces people that God sent Jesus and that God loves us, what happens if when the world peeks inside the church or experiences the church and it discovers that we are not one? What happens to our witness of Jesus and our witness of the love of God? What will you do to promote unity in the church. All for one and one for all. The team, the team, the team. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is so much in life, both in and outside of the church, that seeks to divide us that seeks to isolate us as individuals on an island. And Father, that same pressure is intensely felt, often especially within your church. Please, Father, the next time we're tempted to discourage or criticize a fellow brother or sister in Christ, please, Father, let us remember our unity with that brother or sister in Christ Jesus and the prayer of your Son, our Savior, that we would be one. Father, we ask for you to protect and enhance and grow the unity of West Bulls Community Church. It's even in our name, Father. Community, where we come in unity. I'd ask that you would protect that unity here and continue to have it grow both for our sake as an extension of your love to us, but especially, Father, in the words of your Son, that the world may know that you sent your Son, Jesus, and that you love your people. We ask this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please remember your Christmas tickets on the way out the door. Buy early, buy often, buy extra for neighbors and friends. They'll come if you ask. And as always, we have a permanent come pray with us sign. If you'd like to come up, say hi, and have someone pray with you for whatever reason, don't be shy. We'd love to see you and pray with you. God bless you.